Chapter 8, Part 2 of Shores of the Polar Sea, a narrative of the Arctic expedition of 1875-76. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Shores of the Polar Sea by Edward Lawton Moss. Chapter 8, Part 2 quarter of a mile north of the alert a field of polar flow had been pushed on shore and split up into a number of floebergs with lanes and streets between them this view of our winter quarters was obtained from the top of one of the fragments beyond the ship cape rawson may be seen forming the western portal of robeson channel while away across the strait the snowy hills of greenland make the eastern for a mile or more the sledges crept slowly along in the same order as they had started dragging through the snow with much difficulty the whole depth of the runners buried in the soft snow made them pull as one of the men said like a plough with a cartload on it the two leading sledges pulled the heaviest though the weight per man was about equal in all they carried specially built boats wonderfully light in proportion to their size weighing respectively seven hundred forty and four hundred forty pounds but difficult to manage because they distributed the weight over the whole length of the sledge every time a sledge stuck it took a united effort with a one two three hole to start it forward again soon in order to save the men it became necessary to double bank the sledges that is to say two crews pulled one sledge forward and then walked back for the other. Even the sledges without boats pulled very heavily. We could not but confess that the labor was harder than we had expected, but if others had gone through it, we could. Crews loaded with exactly the same stores as ours, and pulling the same 240 pounds a man, had accomplished all the longest journeys on record. Every ounce of weight on each of the seven sledges had been carefully sought over, not so much as an unnecessary screw was carried the sledge rifle for example had four inches cut off its barrel and all the brasswork removed from its stock both men and officers knew that no reduction was possible unless the number of days travel was curtailed or some other change made in the well-tried arrangements of their successful predecessors on one point however our parties deviated from precedent tea instead of rum for lunch was most decidedly an improvement we camped early on the first day's march the spot selected was a little bay inside one of the curious hook-shaped promontories of the coast the process of camping is a simple one when camping time comes an officer goes on in advance and selects a flat piece of snow a spot where it is soft for about six inches down is best then the sledge halts everything is unpacked the cook of the day lights up his staring lamp under a panful of snow for tea the tent with its poles already secured in it is pitched with its door away from the wind and secured by ropes to the sledge at one end and to a pickaxe driven into the snow or ice at the other then a waterproof is spread over the snow inside and over it a robe of duffel a material like close blanket the sleeping bags and haversacks are next passed in 
and the men, beginning with the innermost, for there is not room for all at once, changed their snow-saturated moccasins and blanket wrappers for night pairs carried in the haversack. Moccasin, worsted stockings, and blanket wrappers all pull off together, frozen hard into one snowy mass about the foot. Meantime, others are banking up snow all around the tent outside. Nothing adds more to the warmth of the tent than thorough banking up. In about an hour from the time of halting, everyone except the cook is packed inside his bag. All wear close-fitting Berlin wool helmets, enclosing head and neck, and leaving only the face exposed. The men call them Eugenies, for they were the thoughtful gift of the Empress. The cook soon gives notice that tea is ready, and each man sits up in his bag and gets his pannikin full, softening his biscuit in it as it cools to a drinkable temperature. After tea comes half a pound of pemmican, a peppery mixture when one's lips are blistered with hot and cold pannikins, and cracked with sun and frost. An ounce of preserved potato is warmed up with it, and it greatly improves its flavor. When the cook has trimmed his lamp for the morning, and scraped out the pannikins, his duties are over, and he changes his food coverings, wriggles into his bag, and squeezes himself down next the door. Finally, about half a wine glassful of rum, with a little water is served out all around. This, however injurious under other circumstances, helps to tide over the chilly moments when one's frozen clothes melt, and acts much as a bellows does to a feeble fire. The heads soon disappear into the bags, and everyone goes to sleep as fast as the cold and cramp in his feet and legs will let him. The hardships of sledging are made up of innumerable small worries. For the first two or three days we were all plagued with cramp. We could hardly bend up our knees to tie a moccasin, or put on a food wrapper without being obliged to kick out suddenly, overbalancing ourselves and our neighbors into a general melee, like a row at Donnybrook Fair. When the men began to get warm in their bags, muffled remarks about the cramp gradually gave place to smothered snores that would last till morning, and then the performers would wake with a firm conviction that they had never slept at all. On our first night of spring sledging, the temperature fell to minus thirty-five degrees, and many lay awake with the cold. Four nights afterwards, it was nearly ten degrees colder, but the tents were better banked up, and the under-robes and coverlet better laced together. Some of us, moreover, had discovered that turning the mouth of the bag under and lying on it greatly increased the warmth. The officer is the outside man at the end of the tent away from the door. It is his duty to call the cook the first thing in the morning. It is no easy thing to wake at the right hour when the sun shines impartially all the twenty-four. The watch is often consulted two or three times before five o'clock comes. Then the cook turns out, lights his lamp, has a pipe, sets some snow melting, and scrapes down cocoa for breakfast. Afterwards he walks in over his sleeping companions and brushes down the snowy festoons of frozen breath hanging from the tent. Cocoa and pemmican are disposed of soon after seven. The frozen blanket wrappers and moccasins that have served for a pillow have to be got on again, 
and about eight the sledge is again ready to start. Packing is called work, and everybody is anxious to be off and get up a little warmth with exercise. In our next day's march, we visited the snow house built by Patterson in the autumn, and found its roof level with the snow. A fox had taken up his quarters in it, and made very free with the dog biscuit. That night we camped near a conspicuous mass of ice on the shore of a small island. The spot afterwards became a well-known landmark, partly by accident, and partly because the striking piles of ice made a definite point to march for. The numerous shorter sledge parties often halted there for lunch or camp. Upon one such occasion, the drawing reproduced in this book was obtained. The Floberg itself was not a very large one, but it afforded an excellent example of the structure of polar flow. We could not but wonder what enormous force had pushed it upwards on the sloping beach till its flat upper surface stood forty feet above the flows around it. The lower half was made of what may be called conglomerate ice. The upper was stratified with the usual white and blue layers. White, where the ice was spongy with air cells, blue in the denser layers between. High overhead might be seen a section, in olive-tinted ice, of what had once been a summer pool, and on top of all, like sugar on a cake, lay last season's snow slowly condensing into ice. End of chapter 8, part 2